0: Welcome to the show. Lovely sunny day. Friday the 22nd of April. I am off to Sandown Park today for the first day of their mixed meeting. It is the classic trial in the Bet365 mile ahead of the jumps finale tomorrow. Uh, Lydia Hislop will be at Sandown Park today as well. So we need to get briskly through today's news. And Lydia, first of all, and it seems entirely appropriate that you and I are doing this show together. And for what? might be the final chapter for the moment of the Robbie Dunn uh, hearing, the written reasons for his uh, appeal and reduction of sentence came out yesterday. Again, first question is, uh, has this given us any context as to why his ban was reduced by 44%?
1: It's given us the context that as the panel saw it, um, but but, do I think um, the reasoning is good? And uh, No, I don't. Uh, that I attended all of the disciplinary panel, I attended uh, the appeal. I found the tone and the conduct of the appeal unacceptable. I was hoping that the, the reasoning would be better, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm far from convinced by the reasoning employed, if, if I'm completely honest. We should stress, of course, that like the disciplinary panel, the appeals board um, upheld the breach and agreed that uh, Robbie Dunn's behaviour in bullying, harassing, briny frost over an extended period was reprehensible and disgraceful so that that's just important to remind ourselves before we go into the
0: legal argument of the case so am i right in thinking that your objection is not necessarily with the with the result the ultimate punishment and the ultimate conclusion of the appeals panel it's with the working that was deployed through the through the process.
1: Yes, I mean I I am as I would hope most people are a strong advocate of the right to appeal, and uh, if a defence puts forward credible arguments as to why uh, that appeal should be upheld either in terms of the breach or the penalty then i i think that is the right thing to do it's important to note here that none of the defence counsel's arguments actually landed in the reasons they are all rejected it is something that the appeal board Themselves brought to the case that caused the uh, the breach, uh, the penalty for the breach to be reduced by 44%. And um, They start by saying that um, it was excessively severe because uh, Robbie Dunn uh, was only um, should only have been found in breach of one offence, not four, because there was an element of of, of rep- repetitiveness about uh, bringing him in breach of J19 and accounts two, three and four, so he was only found to be in breach for one. Um, Second, they they quibbled with um, the disciplinary panel's view that the conduct um, that uh, Robbie Dunn was found to be guilty of was in front of the wider public and of the racing community. Well, the public does know something know all of this, it knows all of this detail and it was going to know it from the moment that this came in front of the disciplinary panel, not because it was leaked but because these details would be heard in front of the press and the press would be able to report it under the current system of the disciplinary panel and therefore given that we're talking about conduct uh, which um, has an impact on the good reputation of horse racing, then it is absolutely relevant that the public know about all of these details. So I, I really don't follow that. And I also don't follow the points of, of mitigation, uh, particularly um, the panel, uh, the appeals board felt that uh, Robbie Dunn was given no credit for being willing to enter into mediation. Mm. Um, this was that incident um, instigated yeah. uh, by Chris Morden, and Richard Johnson at Kempton. And this attempt at mitigation was characterised as a banging of heads together, which implies equal blame and an intention to smooth things over, which is wholly inappropriate and probably even more offensive to anyone who might be bullied in the
0: workplace. The BHA has recognised, it seems, from a release last night, that there are, are shortcomings in some of the language that was used in the appeal and some of the ways in which it was carried out. What are they going to do about it?
1: Well, it's clear that um, the relationship between the BHA and the judicial panel is, is not good at the moment, and that the BHA is unhappy with the judicial panel. I can read from the press release that the BHA released yesterday. It says, While it is, imp- it is fair to point out that both sides received an opportunity to articulate their arguments before the Independent Appeal Board, the BHA is aware of the criticisms of the tone and management of the Appeal Board hearing and recognises and shares these concerns. A review of the Appeal Board structure was discussed sometime prior to this hearing. And the BHA will be working with the Independent Judicial Panel Chair on a review of the Appeal Board framework in the coming months. It is the BHA's view that such panels, as well as having the appropriate legal skills and experience, ought to be appropriately diverse and inclusive at all times. Um, That's quite a stark public statement, really, isn't it? And it it suggests that there has been um, some frustrations behind the scenes and that maybe those behind-the-scenes, uh, private ways of addressing this issue have been frustrated in, in some kind of way. It does risk coming across as, as being slightly pre- peevish, um, that the result has, has not gone fully the way that the BHA would want. But I would uh, I balance that point by saying that the BHA has twice stated, when the original decision was published on the 30th of March and now yesterday, that it does accept
0: the decision. So how, in your opinion, then, do you make this appeal board fitter for purpose than you perceived that it was a couple of weeks ago?
1: I would observe that really that the appeal board needs to be quite obviously at least of um, equal gravitas to the disciplinary panel and there is a, a sort of implication that, it, that that is a higher authority. I mean in the appeal board's reasons themselves they refer to um, a lower court uh, by implication, meaning in this case the disciplinary panel, but um, the contrast in, in experience and expertise between the disciplinary panel and the conduct of it, having sat through both, with that of the appeals board, you, you could hardly have said that it was in any way a step up in terms of tone and conduct and gravitas. Um, it's interesting the word diverse that the BHA uh, lights upon there, and I, I do recognise the um, how people from different backgrounds um different genders different ethnicities different sexualities you know differences of all different economic backgrounds different religions etc etc all bring a perspective which collectively i think is helpful for any good process because it draws upon a a wider understanding of things but um I, i i'm not of the view that it would be impossible for three Seventy plus white men to have come to a a a sensible, balanced, and reasonable conclusion.
0: Are there ways, do you think, Lydia, that this could have been played out better for the victim?
1: Yes, I mean it seems odd that the only process that, uh, only formal way in which Bryony Frost could address this was to go to the BHA, and for that, this matter of bullying, harassment to be played out um, in the public. That said. Um, Obviously the PGA have come forward and said that they now would have a process that would enable that that to be dealt with internally, but given their interventions in this case along, uh, would the general public trust that? I think, in my opinion, that would be unlikely. I I am, you know, I am am concerned most importantly with uh, one, you know, the, fut- the future of, of Bryony, Fro- Bryony Frost, you know, she is going to have to um, continue her, her career within this context. It'll be interesting to find out from her how she reflects on the, uh, in inverted commas, justice that she has received. I'm not using that in any pejorative sense, but um, it, it might be that, that she doesn't see it that way. So I'm just, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm framing it in that way. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how this impacts on her future. She does seem to have been from the outside to some degree left to fend for herself. I know that the PGA said that they have tried to step forward and maybe the BHA provided some help behind behind the scenes. But from the outside, it's looked pretty stark. I think there's a cause for reflection for um, the whole of the racing community in terms of how they behave over the whole of this incident and what message that sends out to the public and more particularly for future victims. At the end of this process, do you think it's more or less likely that a victim of similar or even worse circumstances would actually come forward and submit themselves to this kind of process? Because I don't think they would. I think it's far more likely that they'd
0: keep quiet. What do you think? Well, I wonder why that is. And and I know this, this is... This shouldn't be something that you or I say, but is there a case that situations like this shouldn't be played out publicly, that this should be carried out behind closed doors for that very reason?
1: There is some merit in that, but given everything that we know, given everything that we have seen over the course of this case, I don't think the racing industry can be trusted to do that.
0: Well, the jump season draws to a close tomorrow at Sandown Park. One of the revelations of this season has been the Mayor Win My Wings, particularly the way she's won her last two races over marathon trips, the Ida Chase at Newcastle, and you just don't win Scottish Nationals, hard held in a canter, gearing down close to the line. But that's exactly what she did, and she goes for another huge pot in tomorrow's last major marquee steeplechase of the season, the Bet365 Gold Cup. Her owner is Sue Howell, who's been a, a very loyal owner to Christian Williams throughout his, his training career and has had many horses and a, a lot of success. But nothing, Sue, I venture I to suggest, quite like this.
2: No, it's been an amazing journey. Um, we we bought the mare uh, four years ago. Um, she won on her third trip over hurdles at Fosslass and won well um we've taken her very steady we have her home when she's out of training um very much enjoy having the horses at home um christian uh, surprised us earlier in the year when he said he wants to make an entry in the ida um we went along and she won that very nicely um finished a little bit distressed uh then he suggests then she came into herself she is a spring mare her form sort of shows that. Um, we'd run her in a couple of listed chases back in the winter. Uh, didn't run that well, but she's definitely a spring mare. So then we went. He said, suggested the Scottish National, at which we were surprised again. Um, um, the way we won, the way she won it, was absolutely incredible.
0: And uh, am I right in thinking she was a slightly opportunistic purchase as well? It's not as though there was a big plan to go out and get her in the first place
2: no we'd actually uh, gone down to christian's one morning to look at a, another horse and he brought her out from a stable um, didn't really say much about her we went and had a cup of coffee by the beach um, with Christian and then we said well let's let's buy her and let's see how she how she goes
0: <laughs> but so you, you you've had horses for ages I mean I was thinking the other day if there's one horse in training if there's one chaser in training i'd love to own i mean she she must have given you immeasurable fun
2: she's given us the the journey we're on with her i mean i call it such a lifetime achievement to win the, the scottish uh, grand national was never in my plans um so it's an absolute dream for us absolutely fantastic
0: and and ju- just tell me a bit about your your own history and background with with, with horses
2: Grew up on a farm uh, with sheep, cattle, horses, um, went through pony club, hunting, um, various events. um, Always loved horses. uh, Then parents always had horses. So I was always determined um, I was never going to be good enough to uh, race, ride. That was for sure. So um, became an owner and have done some breeding, not that successfully in the past. um, So, just continually bought young stock as a rule. Um, Had them at home. Just um, brought them on slowly and then into training. Um, Christian's been a phenomenal trainer for us. Um, He's young, he's enthusiastic and a great horseman. Um, And it's continued from there, really. And and about how
0: how do you look at tomorrow's race? Can you, can you realistically believe she can go and do it again?
2: I'm um, apprehensive about this £14 uh, rise in the weights, And can she win with that weight? We know she's very well. She came back from the Scottish Grand National in very good form. Um, we know she's a spring mare. But I think the weight, it would be my concern.
0: All right, Sue Howell there, the owner of Win My Wings. I think this is one of the most extraordinary stories of the season, Lydia. She couldn't do it again, could she? Well, I think she might, you know.
1: Well, she trotted up in the Scottish Grand National, didn't she? By seven lengths and sort of really easily. It looks like Cheek pieces have been absolutely transformative. You know, I suppose her two outstanding performances, that and the Ida, have both been over four miles or four miles plus, and on flat left-handed tracks. Clearly, Sandan is shorter, right-handed, and uh, just a different kind of test in terms of how quickly the fences come up in the back straight. And she's going to have to prove um, that she is able to deal with that. But you uh, wouldn't—you mean you wouldn't be confident to say that she couldn't defy that rise?
0: It it's sort of the day is going to need something special, isn't it? Because I don't I don't want to be critical, but it's a bit thin for my liking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean you know it's the theme of the season isn't it yeah it really is thin i'm afraid um the 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 grade 1 celebration chase doesn't read to me as a, as a grade 1 the grade 2 Oaksie chase again it just sort of scrapes that level uh yeah i i think it does look thin and the and ditto the select hurdle grade 2 um they are the only four runners in that only five runners in the celebration chase only four runners in the Oaksie chase it isn't good enough we are going to be turning off our, our supporters, the people who are fans of our sport and the people who greatly contribute to its running via betting. And uh, at the moment, the industry seems to be completely deaf to that. Not, there are some exceptions. I think some participants are listening, uh, but I, I see no evidence that race courses are.
0: Uh, on that theme, then, we ought to talk about Tony McCoy, the 20 times champion jockey's intervention in the five-day festival debate yesterday. When interviewed at a golf day on Sky Sports Racing, he really launched one into Cheltenham and Jockey Club race in the strongest possible terms.
1: Yes, he said it's the worst thing that racing could ever do. That's pretty categorical, isn't it? And he also said people keep saying to him, "Why is it going to happen?" So it, no, it's inevitably going to happen. He keeps, keeps saying, "Well, why? Why is it going to happen?" Then he said that the jockey club jockey club courses could do better they could do better in marketing other courses and they could do better in terms of the prize money that they uh, present for winning at the Cheltenham Festival Uh, he talked about keeping the Cheltenham Festival special and uh, not diluting it and that that should be the jockey club's concerns and yes I do think it's a it's a very significant intervention particularly expressed in such an unequivocal way and I entirely support everything he said
0: Lydia, no one's going to be quibbling with uh, five days of punches down next week, I don't think. Particularly when we see Alaho, Clandozobo, Minella, Indo, and Galvin taking each other on in the in the feature chase. Who's going to come out best of that little lot?
1: Ooh, I don't over three miles. Hmm. Um, uh, it, know, it's that's a that's a really good it is, one. Clandozobo uh, versus Alaho. I think that's where I'm. That's where I'm majorly looking at. That's where it com, comes down to for me. Zobo revived by the Blinkers and it worked in terms of cheek pieces this time last year. And Alaho, who I think at this track um, is quite interesting over three miles. Uh Mm, but would I prefer him left-handed? Probably so. as Oboe by process of elimination.
0: Yeah, I rather agree. I'm hoping he's going to be a price as well. Uh, he probably won't be. But, uh... I think he
1: will be against that opposition. Um, but, you know, Punchestown is you know is is five days, but it's got, and I don't mean this in any way rudely, I mean it only in terms of the context of the Cheltenham Festival seeking to go five days. And I know that they'll say that they're going to go six races a day, uh, per day, but we all know that it'll inevitably be seven. It means a lot of padding, doesn't it? a lot of handicap padding um, and at least um, Ireland at the moment have got uh, a high quality level of horse.
0: Let's talk about today's racing. You're off to Sandown Park on racing TV duty for the Classic Trial and the Bet365 Mile. The Classic trial's become sort of trendy again, hasn't it, by the looks of it?
1: Uh, what, you mean trendier than some of the other races? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, if we're talking about the sort of tomorrow being slightly sad looking in places for the jumping finale... I, the, the, the Charlie Appleby gave the, the classic trial a shot in the arm last year with Adair and Yabir and Alan Kerr was the winner. And I don't know, it's got a nice look to it this year, I think.
1: It's great. I mean, it did they had a super edition this time last year and I hope that they get a good edition this time as well. I mean, it's, I really like Stand Down. I think it's a great track. Um, and uh, a race course that is on the is a- accessible um, by rail and is in the most populated area in the whole of Britain, uh, it really should do very very well indeed shouldn 't it Jockey club race courses um, so yeah i 'm really looking forward to the classic trial. Um, and I think Goldsburg was a good winner of the Zetland. Um, probably similar form when third in the Grand Prix de Paris. It's, it's interesting. I mean, you think he's going to stay a lot further, so a stiff ten finals will suit him. Fantastic has got to be interesting as a full brother to Craxton. um, the Derby winner, um, sorry, the Derby third and the Coronation Cup winner and the dual champion stakes winner. Um, this horse was uh, really built on his debut when winning at Newcastle in October. I mean, he was heavily odds on, he was pretty green, but given his pedigree, you'd think he was going to be better as a three-year-old and better over more of a trip.
0: All right, it is Friday, which means it's time to check the rundown of the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. Top 10, it's really a question of as you were since last week. There's not been that much really significant international high-grade stakes action to cause any ructions here. So I'll spin you through them again. Ten is Animo, uh, the Australian. Will this horse race again? Nine is Very Elegance, the Melbourne Cup winner. Eight is Contrail, who will slip out of this because it's been a long time since he's run and he's been retired. Seven is Zaki. Now, there's some important news today from Annabelle Nisham. Zaki won't come to Royal Ascot. Uh, he's got two domestic targets, the Doomben Cup being one of them, close up. Uh, six is Gran Alegria. Five, Euphoria. Four, Four, Nick's Go who again will slip out of this because he hasn't run for a while and he's been retired. Three is golden, 60. Two, life is good. And Nature Strip at the top of the pile. James Willoughby's with me. Uh, James, we can expect some big European Group 1 action to shake this list up, can't we? Most notably the lock-in stakes if Baid returns. Yeah, that's right,
3: Nick. Uh, A uh, much-needed British-European superstar to add to the mix in Baid, who was as high as number two last year following his very successful run. And just a quick word on what you mentioned about the horses dropping out of the uh, list. This is supposed to be a rolling um, sort of classification of the world's best horses. And so we want to keep horses in after they've retired for 150 days, which is what we decide. So it gives ballast to the rankings and we don't get situations where a bunch of horses have all retired and left a horse who's not worthy of at number one. So we're mimicking the way the international classifications work. They've presented the world's best racehorse ratings now. They're presented at the end of the year. We just do it on a rolling basis.
0: Okay, so let's talk about horses who might be scaling their way up the ladder during the mid part of the season. Of course, I'm talking about the classic crops. Now, in earlier editions, we've talked about the classic crops in the United States because obviously the Kentucky Derby trials are more developed and mature. We've talked about this exciting crop of horses in Australia. We haven't really had a chance to touch upon the impact of, of what we've seen so far in, in Britain. But we've probably got enough to go at now as regards particularly horses like Native Trail and Perfect Power.
3: Yeah, that's right. Now, we just had last week uh, the, a really thrilling review of the Moe and Chanda Champagne Stakes in Australia where Fireburn and She's Extreme, two very talented fillies, did battle. And Fireburn, who's been very impressive this year, is as high as uh, number 14, despite being a, ineffectively, being a two-year-old. Now, the three-year-old classic crop here, one might expect to be in advance of the Australian two-year-old crop most seasons at this time of year, just because they've had more opportunities as three-year-olds. It's not the case. And this is what we've been commenting when we've been discussing this over the last few weeks, Nick, is are we in the middle of this changeover in the power base of world racing where we've seen a shift of power to countries who were formerly lagged behind Europe? And so... It was very interesting to view what the rankings did with the Classic Trial last week. There were two very satisfactory ones, I don't know what you thought, but in terms of perfect power, um, who was supposed to really be able to win on, on previous form, the, the Greenland Stakes, and did so readily enough at Newbury. Uh, and he returned at 58, but he was trumped as expected uh, by Native Trail, who was last year's champion two-year-old, trained by Charlie Appleby for. And his fluent win in the Craven Stakes was ranked at 22, uh, which is makes him by far the leader of his crop, as you might expect. But once again, as we've been saying, the theme continues. These are historically low at this time of year, because Native Trail is an absolute standout horse, and one might expect him to be uh, hovering around the, the top 10 in a normal year. But he's 10, 12 places. Below that, and the rest of the classic aspirants headed by perfect power lagging somewhere behind down in the 50s and even in in, in three figures.
0: You see, James, I'm slightly confused by how low perfect power is. Now, I appreciate Native Trail is a a, a very, very good horse, an exceptional horse, but perfect power at 58. I would have thought, whatever you think about his chance of staying in the guineas, which is academic for this exercise, but I would have thought that the computer would have loved this because in the Greenham Stakes, he beat uh, Angel Blur, a horse who won Group 1 races and had won a couple of Group 2s as well, uh, had lots of strong two-year-old form, and Lucille, who'd, who'd bolted up in a gym crack. It's not as though he was beating a couple of maiden winners.
3: Right. So the way this works, to try to keep this in a compact form for explanation purposes, is you think of horses being like websites on the world wide web each being like a like a node and then between them are drawn lines when they meet in races right so you get this gigantic network of representations between horses now if the distances between those nodes are small because the distances between horses on the racetrack are small when they when they've met plus you get conflicting paths between horses caused by one beating another one day and then that horse defeated, reversing the form on another day, you get this gigantic web which closes in on itself, tightens up, because the computer gets more and more uncertain as to what the heck is going on. Whereas, in a, a country like Australia at the moment, and in America last year, for example, the relationships were very clear and separated from one another, and that web of nodes and links between them spread out. So we could see clear daylight between how good the horses were. Now, if you take British two-year-old racing last year, the nodes are relatively close together. And particularly in the case of perfect power, the horses he beat, and then in turn the horses that they beat in their group races, it's not particularly distinct historically. It's not bad, don't get me wrong. But in terms of the race ratings, which is what the computer thinks the form is worth in each race, well, Perfect Power's three best ratings, which are the same as the, on the same scale as the world's best racehorse ratings that's the official ratings, the BHA ratings in Britain are 117, 115, and 114. It's not bad, but as you say, a, a little lower than you might expect for a horse that's won two group ones, whereas. Um, He could expect maybe like two or three pounds uh, points higher than that in a normal year. And Native Trail, for his part, won 19 for the National Stakes, won 19 for the Dewhurst, and he returned with 117. So both these horses, Perfect Power and Native Trail, ran perfect prep racers, slightly below their two-year-old best, but winning readily, suggesting they're ready to peak in the 2000 guineas.
0: And Native Trail, of course, emblematic of this remarkable start of the season. Even if it was predicted or predictable this remarkable start of the season from charlie appleby and william buick both of whom are clipping at around 36 40 percent buick for example james his his stakes record in the last fortnight reads um free handicap earl of sefton nell gwynn stakes craven stakes fred darling stakes and the blue ribbon trial at epsom and he would probably go and win the classic trial at Sandown this afternoon as well it's just ridiculous
3: Yeah, I mean, we we only cover group races, so his record in group races reads 1-3-1-1-1 in his last five, which is remarkable. Appleby has won his last three. but And Buick now, this week, moves up from six back to four in the overall jockey's world rankings. He's been as high as two briefly in the winter, but he's existed around number four for the most part. Above him are... James McDonald at number one, the Australian ace, or New Zealand-born Australian-based ace, I should say, and then two um, American-based jockeys in Flavion Pratt and Joel Rosario. And Buick is right behind them in terms of the index, the point score, Uh, and so he's poised to go back to number two. James McDonald is going to take some catching. He continues at a torrid pace in Australia, and for me, he's a very worthy uh, number one indeed. Nick, let me take you back to a couple of years ago when Charlie Appleby was world number one then as well. Well, the uh, correspondence that we get from the racing public is slightly different to what it was then. Um, slightly fewer letters and emails with the words, imposter, you must be joking, uh, in the body. Uh, and and uh, more saying, yeah, like, you know, we, we told you all along, this man was a phenomenon. So it's great to see that uh, Appleby has confirmed and carried on the good work. It's amazing, though. You, you still get people in the, in the press or, or writing, um, referring to him as if this is some sort, sort of like fly-by-night situation. The guy is by far the world's best trainer, if you ask me at the moment. And um, it will probably continue for at least a decade, the way he's going.
0: Yeah, the depth of, of talent in that stable at the moment is is just ridiculous. James, just before we go, a couple of footnotes from the United States. Jackie's Warrior reintroduced to the... To the- Higher echelons of our rankings at 16 and could yet climb further.
3: Yeah, well worth mentioning him. He's um, a very, very good dirt sprinter. His three best uh, performance ratings are 1-2-3 in the Alan Jerkins, the Champagne, and the hopeful of his great two-year-old season two years ago, those latter two contests. Uh, He returned in a a grade three. He he was supposed to win, uh, and he did fluently. Um, He's been a top 10 horse just before the Breeders' Cup, because he fluffed his lines uh, last year. I don't know whether he was physically found to be not quite right, but he returned in the Count Fleet um, Sprint Handicap, and he was due to win this, as I say. Uh, It was a sloppy track at Oakland that he caught, but that caused him no problems whatsoever. He raced away with that race, and he returns at number 16. So once again, as the season progresses, I would expect him to continue uh, his three-year-old and two-year-old dominance and return to his former seat of power at around seven or eight.
0: And and every chance Royal Ascot will be one of the most exciting weeks of the year. Well, we know it's going to be anyway, but for these rankings in particular, because we know that Nature Strip is coming, all things being equal. We know Home Affairs is coming. We know Golden Pal is coming for the Sprint. It was announced this week Artorias would come with Jamie Spence. We spoke about that yesterday. There's every chance Pizza Bianca might come to Royal Ascot as well. Her season is going to begin at Aqueduct uh, on Sunday in the $100,000 Memories of Silver State. So we'll be able to reflect on that next week and Zaki as i said when we were doing the rundown is not going to ask it but we'll continue to hoover up stakes races <laughs> down under for the niche and where are we going where are we expecting Zaki to end up in a couple of months time James
3: i think i think he's i don't think he can climb much higher he's had 21 tries now in uh, group races and he's won just 10 of them um, he's been very unlucky in australia i would say look a couple of occasions he's run a great race and been caught by uh, something I, either running a, a career best, getting a brilliant ride, as was uh, the case last time when, when <laughs> he raced in the swamp down the middle in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes. He, w- he was done by a horse who switched to the stands Rail. And I think he's a very good horse and, and, and Annabelle Neeson's done brilliantly with him, but I don't see him getting inside the, the world's top five. But I mentioned Royal Ascot and, you know, whilst I continue to, to cogitate about like whether British racing is on a slippery slope downward, you can't say that at all of Royal Ascot. In fact, it's, it's really going the other direction, if anything, and the internationalization of it is by one of its most e- exciting and enduring aspects. And that's only continuing, showing that as a meeting, and indeed ASCOT as a race course, it, ha- it still has at least the luster, if not a stronger luster than ever, in capturing the attentions of the world's best horses. And this is in- enormously important for our rating uh, uh, rankings as well, because it enables us to bring together, to tie together some of those international threads. And the Australian horses, we've been saying that they're the highest ranked collectively they've ever been. So when the strength of Australian racing we're measuring is within the last 12 years when we started, it's never been higher than it is. And, and, and we successfully forecast that Japanese horses would do what they did over the last few years. My forecast now, and I know not everybody agrees with me, Is that i think australian horses will start to really make an impact across the world beyond sprint distances too which has been their traditional hotbed i think their middle distance racing is getting better and better there are more quality stallions standing in australia that can get stock at a mile and and more than there ever been to my eye so interesting to see how very elegant for one gets on if as anticipated she does make the trip up
0: here Comprehensive stuff as ever from James Willoughby and thoroughbred racing commentary now off to Hong Kong for a bonus edition today with Jim
4: Nick one of the biggest race days in the Hong Kong calendar at Sha Tin on Sunday but my ho oh my how very different to other years there are no internationals not one The very strict COVID regulations have made it impossible for outsiders to come and compete. Not even the Japanese who have been farming these rich Hong Kong fixtures in recent years. They're they're farming big races worldwide, for that matter. So it's all about the hometown stars. Golden 60, who's always box office material, and he's facing an interesting clash with rising star California Spangle in the Group 1 FWD Champions Mile. More intriguingly, it will be Vincent Ho facing up to the tactical know-how and guile of four-times champion Zach Purton, who again rides California Spangle. Golden 60 notched his 20th win from 23 starts when beating Russian Emperor in the Chairman's Trophy last start, and Vincent rode a much better race on the champion, whose dazzling turn of foot is still there, I'm pleased to say. The Richard Gibson-trained Wellington is strongly fancy to take the Group 1 Chairman's Sprint Prize. He won it last year, and trainer Gibson is very happy the way the five-year-old is working. Don't forget Wellington had a bruising experience in the Hong Kong Sprint on International Day in December when four horses fell at the top of the straight. Wellington ran right into the back of them. He was badly hampered. Lucky to have survived really. His danger this time might be the improving site success who's a new ride for Purton. And so on to the big one, the FWD QE2 Cup and here I fancy Romantic Warrior, the Hong Kong Derby winner to get the better of Russian Emperor who registered his sole local win in the Hong Kong Cup claiming the scalp of Golden 60. Blake Shin certainly won the plaudits that day. Yes, it's going to be very different. With the announcement of the big prize money boost for next season, I know there are many overseas connections who'd love to go back to Hong Kong. Unfortunately, that is out of the hands of racing people. As ever, all we just need is some luck in running.
0: Jim, thank you. Jay McGrath there. For so many years, the BBC's senior commentator and considered to be a doyen of the commentary box. It may not be too long, before we have the first female full time commentator on a British race course. This is Danny Jackson
5: as they race on towards the halfway point and it's Desert History out in front from Emron in second place Sassoon races third to the outside in fourth place up the inner Palazzo track through by Al Algear and at the back of the field King of Tonga and Barrister Blaster as they head past the cutaway it is still in front Desert History with the nose band at length away in second is Palazzo racing third Emron in the maroon and yellow silks to the inside the dark of Al Algear starting to make a little ground Sassoon out in company with Barrister Blaster and King of Tonga the Grey is at the back of the pack as they head towards and inside the final three furlongs. It is Desert History who's claimed now by Palazzo. Palazzo comes through to take it up down the centre. Emran to the left-hand side with Sassoon even further out on the track. Algear in behind them getting ridden along is King of Tonga trying to get through as they race on towards the final quarter mile. It's Emran who's taken it up with uh, on the outside Sassoon. Sassoon comes through. King of Tonga sticking on. It's Sassoon. Sassoon from King of Tonga, Emran in third place, Palazzo no more to give in fourth, Sassoon though up the rail has taken it up as they race up towards the line, it's Sassoon out in front and Sassoon will score, in second place is King of Tonga, Algear, Emran, Barrister Blaster, Palazzo and a long way last was Desert History.
0: Danny Jackson there, who has been broadcasting for some time for bookmakers William Hill and has also had some significant experience calling uh, the racetrack at Turf Paradise alongside Craig Braddock. And now Newbury Racecourse have given Danny the opportunity to take in some of their auxiliary races this season. Uh, Danny joins me now. Danny, what's the what's the plan? When are we going to hear you?
5: Today will be the 14th of July, which is Lock In Day, of course. So it's a big day. It's Ladies' Day at Newbury Racecourse as well, and we just wanted to. Well, Newbury wanted to add a new dimension to the standard Ladies' Day. It's not all about, you know, necessarily getting dressed up and all that kind of thing. It will still be, and I absolutely love putting my hat and dress on, but it's just adding a new dimension. And I'm going to be calling the well, the, the race before the first race, which is of course the charity race at about quarter past twelve and uh, there'll be a panel of pioneers on that day as well with some top female sportswomen, and uh, it's going to be absolutely fabulous.
0: And people have always asked, well, why isn't there a female race caller in, in this country, and why do you hear so few of them anywhere in the world? Has, is it something you've given a, a lot of thought to in the time that you've been, you've been broadcasting and doing a bit of commentary, Greyhounds and in the States?
5: I think it's one of those things that people, you know, they look to the first person that's done it, And there hasn't ever been a first person that's done it and a lot of women I know go "Hmm, I'm not sure if I can do that and I read something somewhere years ago that said men will look at a job interview um, or a job application and say look I can do that I can do that I'm not quite hot on that but I'll get I'll put my application in anyway women go oh I don't tick that box I can't apply so I think it is that kind of thing they they feel they especially the first person person that's going to do it i think they feel they have to be you know perfect on the money every single time for them to absolutely go for it and having been in an industry dominated by men for 10 years i've realized that actually i've got a lot of support out there um from men from women alike and um i just decided to chuck my hat in the ring and every person that i've spoken to commentator wise And said, oh, absolutely, yeah, we need more women. Absolutely, we definitely need our first one because then I think that will inspire people and that will inspire more women to get involved and and show what they can do behind a mic. Is
0: is it a long-held dream for you? Is it something that you've aspired to for a long time?
5: Honestly, no, because I didn't even know I was going to be a broadcaster. I was going to be a chemical engineer. (laughs) <laughs> so it was a case of I did three years of chemical engineering absolutely hated it did not want to be a chemical engineer dropped out of uni and joined William Hill as a full-time um, customer service assistant then they put me through the deputy manager's program and in the midst of that they took me over to the broadcast side and uh, Ben Bramley who was my boss at the well who was the um, deputy manager of the broadcast side at the time said you know what, we'll give you a trial, we'll see how you go. Six months um secondment turned into now 10 years there. So I didn't, I was absolutely rubbish when I first started. Couldn't tell one end of a greyhound from another or one end of a horse or what have you. But now, I mean, the commentary side of things came about a year in and I really started to relish the commentary of greyhounds because I wasn't so nervous anymore and I love it. I love playing with different things to say. I love the fact that it's so quick Um because I'm, what I would say is I'm definitely more a flat horse than a jump horse commentator at the moment. <laughs> I'm learning and I'm practising the jump side of things. But I just like everything going at a million miles an hour, as fast as they can. Give me five furlongs and 22 runners and I'm your girl.
0: And is there somebody in the commentary box, uh, on the commentary roster at the moment, whose style you admire, whose kind of turn of phrase or or just the way they do things that you think, mm, yeah, that's kind of what I'd like to be a bit like? <sighs>
5: I've always admired John Hunt because it was about, when was it? It must have been the first year, 2012 Olympics. I was listening to Five Live and I'm a swimmer. My background is I was always, you know, in the swimming pool. And races are dull um, if you're not interested. And he was commentating on swimming. And I thought, oh, that is the power of a commentator because he made something that I know can be very dull into something really exciting. I knew where they all were. I, I could visualise it in my mind. Um, and from a layperson's point of view, they could visualise it as well. And and that, I, I just latched on to John and just thought, yeah, you know what? That's what I want to do.
0: Uh, Danny Jackson there. Thanks to Danny and to all my guests today. Um, Lydia, I'm looking forward to hearing Danny at Newbury. Did you ever think of giving commentary a shot?
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. I'd be terrible at it. I, you know, I can't think quickly enough.
0: But it's good good that Danny's sort of taken the bull by the horns and said, actually, to hell with what's gone before. I want to kick on and try and do this.
1: I think that's absolutely excellent. And I hope she's the first of many women who uh, are able to pursue that as a career. I think that would be a a very, very positive thing. I wish her the best of luck. All power to her vocal cords.
0: Absolutely. All power to your vocal cords this afternoon and indeed now, as you advise daily podcast listeners to back Which Horse?
1: One Ease in the 150 at Sandown. That's the Isha Cup. I think stepping up by a furlong and trip will help. I think the hood can't do any harm. I think he's drawn well in five. It's a competitive race. It always is, but I like One Ease to do better as a three-year-old.
0: And One Ease is trained by Charlie Hills for Shadwell. That's the same trainer and owner combination who were represented for so many years with such distinction by the very brilliant sprinter, Batash. Now, Batash's full brother, the Antarctic, was the winner of the Irish Stallion Farm's EBF race at Tipperary earlier in the week and has, in doing so, won the second £20,000 Tattersall's October Book 1 bonus for the year and the 274th overall, with prize money paid out now totalling £7,165,000. He was sold at Book 1 for a cool three-quarters of a million after Batash's brilliant exploits Uh, by Paul McCartan's Bally Stud to Coolmore's MV Magnus. So well done to the Antarctic. Great to see the family honour upheld. Could we have another batash on our hands, I wonder. Right, that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to join Charlotte from 9 o'clock this evening for a roundup of this week's best bits and a look ahead to tomorrow in the Saturday edition. I will be back with you on Monday morning. That was Friday, the 22nd of April. Bye-bye.